0: Some of the bad of wealth when it comes to the pages of the Bible. The good is that wealth can be a wonderful gift of God. It can be used by God's people to glorify him and serve others in powerful and unique ways. But the bad of wealth is that because we're sinners, wealth can pose great temptations for us. We can be tempted to worship our wealth as a false idol rather than the one true God We can be tempted to love our wealth more than anything else in this life to the point of greed. And we can be tempted to believe that once we've acquired enough wealth, then we become self-sufficient. We really don't need God anymore. So we have good things and we have bad things. And you put them both together and we come to this conclusion that while wealth is a good thing, it's not the highest good. And that simultaneously, wealth can be a great stumbling block for sinful people like us. And if we put those two things together, our challenge then becomes to be open and honest about both. To not fall into an unhealthy or extreme view of wealth on either side. So if we've covered the good and if we've covered the bad, that means that today we arrive at the ugly. Now, you may be thinking, hold on, wait a minute. The stuff from last week was pretty ugly, wasn't it? Well, we talked about the Israelites' guilt of neglecting the poor. We talked about Jesus' parable of the rich fool. We talked about those dark and sobering words in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's read those words again, a passage that we finished off with last week. 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 6. Now, there is great gain and godliness with contentment. And pierce themselves with many pangs. Sounds pretty ugly. Those are dark words. So yes, the stuff that we talked about last week was ugly. But today we're going to do something a little bit different. Today we're going to see some real life examples of the temptations that we discussed last week. We're going to look at several different stories in scripture. And these are stories about real people. These are not parables They're not hypotheticals. They're not fairy tales. They're not just made up stories. What we read today are real people who fell into the temptations that we discussed. The snare, the trap that Paul warns us about when it comes to wealth. Now, why are we going to read stories like these? Stories that are heart wrenching, stories that are ugly and uncomfortable. Well, for the same reason that God saw fit to include them in his word. We're going to read them because they serve as a warning for people like us. And God, in his grace, has given us these stories that we might not fall into the same trap. So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one. And if you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you. But before we read in Exodus 32, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Uh, thank you for the week in and week out of worship. Um, that when things in other areas of life are crazy, when things are falling apart, when things are unpredictable, we know that every single week we can come here and we can be reminded of your love for us. We can be reminded of your character. We can be reminded of what your son did for us. We can be reminded of the Holy Spirit you've given us, that we can read your word, that we can take communion. And Father, again, in lives and worlds and schedules and calendars that are really, really crazy sometimes, it's so comforting and it's so encouraging to to come together and simply be here in worship. So Father, I pray as we do that this morning that you would... Give us open hearts, give us open minds, give us open ears to hear what it is that you have to say to us. I pray that your spirit would be amongst us, that we would be submissive to your word, as hard as that can be at times. And I pray that as we leave here, we would be more eager and more challenged and just have a stronger desire to know you and love you and to be known by you and to be loved by you as we go out into this world. We pray for the requests that are on our prayer board out in the lobby or listed in the bulletin. Watch over those people, those concerns, those needs. You know what they are, and we pray that you would address them how you see fit. And thank you for your son who died for us, the whole reason that we're here today and every other Sunday. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. Well, our story begins in the book of Exodus with Moses on top of Mount Sinai speaking with God. This is a very lengthy conversation. It's an incredibly important conversation because God is giving Moses his law. Meanwhile, Aaron, Moses' brother, second in command, is watching over the people down below at the bottom of the mountain. And the longer this conversation goes on between God and Moses, the more restless the people get. They start to wonder when Moses is ever going to be done, if he's ever going to come back down again. And we pick up in chapter 32, verse one. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Maybe you've heard it said before that a bored person is a dangerous person. Well, that proves true in this story. The people are bored as they wait for Moses, and as they wait, they have no problem finding a way to get into trouble. Again, they don't know if Moses is going to come back down or not. They don't know how long it's going to take, so, of course, they ask Aaron to make them a god to worship. Now, this, of course, is in direct violation of the Ten Commandments that we read just a few chapters earlier. We talked about several of them last week. God told them not to worship Other gods, God told them not to make images of him or any other God. And yet that's exactly what the Israelites do. How quickly they forget. Now, the whole story is sad of Exodus 32, but there's one particularly sad irony here. All that jewelry that Aaron collected, the earrings, the gold that he got from the people to make this golden calf. Where'd that jewelry come from? I mean, they were slaves in Egypt, so it's not like they were living large when they were there, right? Where would they have gotten all this stuff? Well, if you remember, God gave it to them when they left. God told them to plunder the Egyptians on their way out of slavery. Think about that. The Israelites take the very gifts that God gave them. They take the things that God blessed them with. And they use it as a direct act of betrayal against God himself. It's heartbreakingly ironic. Now, there, of course, would be great consequences for this sin of the Israelites. God almost obliterates the people for their sin until Moses intercedes on their behalf. And then look at when Moses confronts Aaron, second in command. Even Aaron lacks the leadership, lacks the humility to own up for his sin. Exodus 32, verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, what do this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. These are bad people, Moses. You know that. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire. And this is the best part. And out came this calf. Poof! I don't know, Moses. I, I don't know. I definitely did not fashion it with a graving tool. If that's what you're thinking, that was not me at all. None of the people own up for their sin. Every single one of them is rebellious. You can't blame God for saying, you know what, Moses, forget those people. I'll make a great nation out of you. Don't worry about them. I'll take care of them. And yet God, purely in his grace, purely in his mercy and his patience, he doesn't give up on these stubborn, rebellious people. God forgives them. But that doesn't mean their relationship has been unharmed. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 3, as they prepare to leave, God tells them, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. The Israelites now have this even greater gap between themselves and God because of their betrayal, because of their rebellion. Now, why do we read the story of the golden calf? Well, because in all honesty, we're really not that much different than these Israelites. We, too, are often tempted to take wonderful things that God has given us, wonderful gifts that he has blessed us with, and worship them. Make them into our idols rather than worshiping the God who actually gave them to us in the first place. We are all too susceptible to love the gifts that God gives more than we love God himself. We, too, can be a stiff-necked people. Thus, we, too, need warnings like this. And we, too, need God's grace. Now, thankfully, God is just as gracious now as he was back then. That God can show grace to people who are tempted to worship gifts rather than worshiping him. And that's good news for all of us. So that's story number one. Story number two. This time we begin with a man named Ahab. Ahab is a wicked king of Israel who directly opposes God. His wife is no better. In the words of theologians Rod Stewart and the Small Faces, you know she is a mean old Jezebel, Ahab's wife. Now, as king, Ahab already has great wealth. He is doing very well for himself. Now, that doesn't mean that he acquired it in good, honest, God-honoring ways. But Ahab certainly has plenty. He has no want. And yet, look at where we find Ahab. 1 Kings chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Now, Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him for he had said I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers and Ahab lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food but Jezebel his wife came to him and said to him why is your spirit so vexed that you eat, that you eat no food and he said to her Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else if it please you. I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Even as he sits in his palace. Surrounded by his wealth, Ahab decides that he still doesn't have enough. Specifically, he wants that vineyard from a man named Naboth, a man who is surely of less wealth and power and influence than Ahab. Now, of course, Naboth doesn't want to do this. The last thing he wants to do is give away his father's inheritance, even if Ahab offers him a good deal, a better vineyard, a fair price. So when he's rejected, Ahab pouts. But then Jezebel steps in. She doesn't understand why Ahab won't just take the vineyard. I mean, Naboth's a nobody, right? And Ahab's the king. Who cares if you violate God's law? If you want something, go get it, right? So Jezebel hatches a plan. She has Naboth framed for a crime that he didn't commit. Naboth is ultimately executed. Meaning his vineyard is now conveniently available. In the end, Ahab got what he wanted, right? His greed is quenched, at least for now. Now, Ahab does appear to repent for this specific sin, but there would still be great consequences for both he and Jezebel. Ahab is killed in battle in spite of his cowardly attempts to disguise himself. Ahab's sons follow in his footsteps of wickedness. As a result, the kingdom is thrown into even more chaos. God eventually fulfills his promise that Jezebel and the rest of Ahab's house would come to a gruesome end. And Ahab goes down as a legend. One of the most wicked kings in all of Israel's history. So we have two stories. The first, the golden calf, is clearly a story about wealth as an idol. Our second story Naboth's Vineyard, is very much a story of greed. And as we saw in this story with Ahab and Jezebel, greed makes you do some awful things, doesn't it? Things that don't just affect you, things that affect the people around you as well. But again, we should be careful not to hold up our noses at people like the Israelites or even someone as wicked as Ahab. Because if we're really honest about it, we are just as susceptible as they are to the temptation of greed. The temptation of never having enough and doing whatever it takes to get more, no matter how wicked the deed might be. So story number three, we begin with a man named Solomon this time around. Yes, that Solomon, the son of David. The humble king who, at the beginning of his reign, didn't ask God for riches, didn't ask God for power, didn't ask God for women or influence. He asked God for wisdom. But sadly, it appears that Solomon didn't finish quite as well as he started. It's summed up in 1 Kings 11, verse 6. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Over his reign, as Solomon acquired more wealth, more power, more fame, more women, Solomon abandoned God. He clearly ignored God's warning for kings in Deuteronomy 17. Well before the Israelites ever had a king, God said, if you have a king, when you have a king, here are some things you should be aware of. He shouldn't acquire too many horses for himself. He shouldn't acquire too many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And he certainly shouldn't acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And yet that's exactly what Solomon did. Now, why does God give that warning in Deuteronomy 17? Well, God knows that when you're the most powerful king in the world, When you have the most wealth of anyone around, it's really easy to believe that you're self-sufficient. It becomes really easy to believe that you don't really need God anymore. That's the trap that Solomon fell into. He became so rich, so beloved, so revered, so successful that he thought he could handle things without God. Now, once again, maybe you're noticing the theme. We're not always very different from him, are we? How many of us have prayed fervently when money is tight, when things are going wrong, when life is falling apart? But then once we get under control, once we figure things out, once all the right stuff falls into place where it needs to be, we push God back off to the side. God, don't call us, we'll call you whenever we need you, whenever we're in trouble again. But for now, take a rest. I pray that we would heed the warning, that we would heed the example of Solomon. Not to believe that our wealth makes us self-sufficient. we have read three ugly stories of real people giving in to the temptations that come along with wealth. The Israelites worshipped it, Ahab became greedy for more of it, and Solomon bought the lie that it made himself sufficient. Now, I'm sure you're sitting here this morning and you have your own stories that you can think of with these various temptations. Stories of friends or family members, celebrities, athletes, you know, the easy targets. Or maybe even your own story. Stories of falling into the trap that Paul warned us about. In first Timothy, the senseless and harmful desires of riches. But There's one more story I'd like to read today. And at first glance, it may not appear as ugly as the three we've read so far. The Israelites, Ahab, Jezebel, Solomon. But really, this story may be the most heartbreaking of all. We find it in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. The young man said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But the young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. A rich young man approaches Jesus. A man who by all the standard definitions of his day is totally righteous. He's followed all the rules. He's kept his nose clean, done all the right things. The kind of guy you'd like to bring home to mom and dad. He's done pretty well for himself. And yet this young man rightly senses That something is still missing. Even though he's done all the good, all the right stuff, he still feels like there's something off. He still knows that there's something that he lacks. And Jesus's guidance to him is pretty clear. Sell everything you own. Give to the poor and follow me. But what's just as clear as Jesus teaching is this man's rejection. He walks away sorrowful because he had great riches. Now, again, what makes this story so ugly, uglier than the Israelites or Ahab and Jezebel or even Solomon? Well, what makes this story so ugly, what makes it so sad is that we see a man who understands that his righteousness isn't enough We see a young man standing directly in front of Jesus, looking Jesus right in the eye, staring down God's answer to the problem of his lack of righteousness. And Jesus invites this man to follow him, to find the answer he's been looking for, to finally have peace with God, to find that thing that he lacks, to finally have treasure in heaven that moth and rust will not destroy. And yet the man walks away. When he's forced to choose between God and money, he chooses his money. This is a real-life example of Jesus' teaching that no man can serve two masters. He will love one and hate the other. He will embrace one or reject the other. Now, let's be real. I doubt any of us has ever felt the need to choose between God and wealth. Now, that's not necessarily because God would never ask. Maybe it's because we're really good at convincing ourselves that while Jesus may have asked this man to choose, surely he'd never ask me, right? I mean, that would just be unreasonable. That's almost as impractical as asking someone to take up a cross, and Jesus would never do that, right? And if we can even get to the point of considering that God might actually ask someone to do that, that God might actually even ask me to do that. Well, that's when we say to ourselves, well, if he ever did, of course I would give up my wealth. Of course I would sell it all and give to the poor and follow him. But would we? Really? I mean, if we're honest about it, we probably have a little bit more of that rich young man in us We'd like to admit, but nevertheless, may we heed the warning of the rich young man. We see the sins of idolatry, greed and self-sufficiency. We see that real people fall into these traps, people like the Israelites and Ahab and Jezebel and Solomon and the rich young man, and people like you and people like me too. And as we read some of the claims that Jesus makes on his disciples in the New Testament, and specifically the command he issues to this rich young man, when we read words like these, we are forced and challenged to examine where our loyalties lie. We're forced and challenged to consider whether or not those temptations that we talked about are taking a little bit more hold in our lives than we might like to admit. Because it's still true that no man can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other. That was true of the rich young man. And that's also true of us. Now you hear stories like this and you get a little bit uneasy, right? Sounds too extreme. Sounds ridiculous. Well, take heart. You're not alone. Look at how the disciples respond to Jesus' teaching when the rich young man walks away. Verse 23 of Matthew 19. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? That might be the question that we're asking ourselves right now. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The good news here is that Jesus invites wealthy people like us to follow him. Jesus invites wealthy people to be his disciples. And Jesus also makes it clear that with God, all things are possible. Salvation isn't based on human merit. It's not based on proving ourselves. It's not based on earning it. So yes, even a rich person can be saved. And that's good news. But don't think that that negates the command Jesus issued to the rich young man. Don't take verse 26 as a license to hold on to your wealth the way the rich man did. Because it's still true that no man can serve two masters. So in the time that God sees fit for us to have wealth, may we use it in service to him, our one and only true master. We'll talk about that more next week. And one more word of warning. May we be prepared to hold on loosely to our treasures. Because we never know when we might really be forced to choose where our loyalties lie. But the good news is, if that day ever comes, we'll really have nothing to fear. Because we have an inheritance that is far greater than any treasures here on earth. We have treasures in heaven that are far greater than any wealth we can acquire here. And we have a Lord. Who can save us. Because with God, all things are possible. Even a rich person can be saved. And even a rich person can be a disciple of Jesus. So I pray this morning as we leave. That we would be reminded of our identity as disciples. And that our story wouldn't be a story like the Israelites. Or the story like Ahab and Jezebel. Or a story like Solomon. But that we would be Christ's disciples no matter what it costs us. That we would serve one true master. And that we would look forward to treasures in heaven, even if it means losing our treasures on earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that because you've given us your word, we can know who you are, we can know deep down who we are. We can know things about how the world works and what you've done in the past and what you're doing now, but also what you will do in the future. And Father, as we read story after story after story of the dangers of wealth, the temptations of wealth, how all of us are susceptible to fall into the trap, I pray that we would find hope, find joy, and find encouragement. And being invited to be your disciples. You have invited us to follow you. You have invited us to be your sons and your daughters. And I pray that we would take you up on the invitation. No matter what it costs us. You are the only master worth serving. No other master that this life offers or this world offers is worth serving at all. So I pray that we would serve you no matter what it costs us. Thank you for your warnings. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your mercy. And thank you for inviting us to be your people. We love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you have not yet accepted that invitation to serve Christ as your one true master, I pray that you would have that conversation this morning. We'll have several elders standing at the sides of the room during this last song. They'd be happy to pray with you, happy to answer your questions, happy to talk with you about whatever it is that you might need to discuss. And again, we're thankful that you're here this morning. We're thankful that you've worshipped with us. We hope you have a great week, and we look forward to seeing you next week.